rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. The time is 7.59 a.m. You're listening to and watching Good Morning, Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. I hope that you're all doing well, doing really good this morning. Hope that you had a great weekend. We have a great, we have a great everything this morning. We've got a great guest today. We've got some great stories to tell you guys about. Our guest today is candidate for Congress in Illinois' 11th Congressional District, Mr. Qasem Rashid. How are you, sir? I'm good, brother. How are you? Good to be here. All right. Good to see you. Good to see you. We got a great, uh, great discussion for you guys today. Now, I know what you're thinking about. Curtis, first of all, we are back Live. Oh, yeah. I, I know. I know you missed us on Friday. A couple of you guys sent me a text. Curtis, everything all good? Of course, man. Just had to get the uh, had to get the equipment back running right. Now, let's get this weather out the way. So as you guys can see with the weather on your screen, today's high will be 79 degrees. The nighttime high of 66. And Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday will be 84 degrees each day. Now... Uh, the potential for storm starts, looks like, Tuesday uh, in the p.m., and then will be with us Wednesday, continuing to Wednesday evening, and then Thursday looks like it'll be a nice, bright, and sunny day, 84 degrees. Saul Olivas, good morning to you as well. Uh, Mr. Rashid, how was your weekend? It was brilliant. This is what I love about campaigning, getting to connect with folks. We were at the McHenry County Fair. We were at Halal Fest. And uh, this is the first Halal Fest. Shout out to the um, Illinois Muslim Chamber of Commerce for setting it up. I think right. they were expecting five to 6,000. And I want to say they had like 15,000 people attend. It was wild. It was so well run. And if there's one thing that my people know how to do, it's food. <laughs> and the food was just amazing. So next year, if you want a good meal, show up to Halal Fest. Okay. And uh, if you can, well, we'll I'll take a look on Facebook, the Illinois Muslim Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. I'll follow them on Facebook. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'd like to go to that. You, I'm telling you, man, it was brilliant. It was outstanding. We, we had uh, the turnout, I think, was overwhelming. And, and, and the concern was it was raining earlier on. And so at first, folks didn't show up. But then as soon as... In fact, the rain hadn't even dissipated, and people started to come in just droves. And then once the rain left, and you had this cool breeze blowing, it was a good weekend. Nice. It was a good weekend. Um, and how has your campaign for, uh, how's your, your, your run been for, for Congress? What's that been like? It's been beautiful. Okay. It's been a powerful experience. Look, uh, my, my background is a civil rights lawyer. I grew up in this district. Um, my, my wife... Uh, Aisha is the one who convinced me to go to law school. And the one smart thing I ever did in life was listen to her. <laughs> and I maintained that. And uh, we went to Virginia for law school where I, I dove in deep into women's rights, racial justice initiatives, working with people who are incarcerated, training law enforcement on Fourth Amendment right to privacy protections. And I even ran for office out there after the Muslim ban because, you know, you can't sit idle when your kids are asking you, do we need to leave the country? Right, right. Um, uh, after the 2020 election, we decided to come home to be closer to family. And I'm, I'm glad I did come home when I did. My mother passed away just a few months ago. Um, and, you know, that, that conviction to want to continue to serve and transform the advocacy for people who have been underrepresented or marginalized and build it into better policy, right? Because as an advocate, you can support an individual person. As a policymaker, you can make sure that they're not harmed in the first place. You can build a better system right. that upholds justice. And that's how we've been running this campaign, that we are here not because we're funded by corporate interests. We don't take any corporate money. Not a single red cent of corporate money is entering our accounts. I'm here not because I want some accolade or because I want some prestige. I'm here because I've worked in the space for 15 years. I grew up in Section 8 housing. I grew up on food stamps. I grew up working since I was 15 years old to make ends meet. So I understand that struggle firsthand and, and the, the rage that I feel, and that's the right word for it, is that 25 years later, 
as I look around, the wealth and income inequality in this country is worse than it was back when I was growing up. We, we look at the, the climate crisis. We knew back then, we're about the same age. In, in 2000, we remember the, the, the presidential election, Al Gore talking about the climate crisis. I do. And it's worse now than it was back then. We, we haven't been able to see the sun the last four weeks because of these wildfires caused by climate change blocking out the sun. And, and I can go on and on. The opiate crisis has quadrupled. And so when we talk on the campaign trail about what issues matter to us, I'm not speaking from a position of theory or hypotheses or here's what I think the crystal ball is telling me. This is, these are struggles I've experienced myself. And these are struggles that I've worked with thousands of people to help them get out of those struggling situations to a place of justice, of equity, of basic human dignity. And sharing that message on the campaign trail has been met with open arms. People are excited. People are engaged across the political spectrum, across, you know, across the racial spectrum, the gender spectrum. People are paying attention. And I think they're ready for someone from the district who, is, who has lived by example and can back up his words with actions. How big is the district and what other um, uh, towns are in the district? It, it's a very large gerrymandered <laughs> district. It, okay. was, it was designed this way by, by the incumbent um, and, and the powers that be. It starts all the way down in Lamont, comes up through Bolingbrook, Naperville, Aurora, and then goes up through Kane County and McHenry County. It goes as far west as Belvedere and uh, as far north and, and east as the top of McHenry County. And when you're out there meeting folks and you're on the campaign trail, um, are folks, I mean, you, you've mentioned the reception's been good, and that's yeah. a great thing. Um, but do you find people are, I guess the word I'll use is ready, are, are people ready for that new change? You are a relatively fresh face as opposed to the um, incumbent who people come to, come to know and things like that you know the 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 namesake recognition so when you're having these conversations um and people do find out about your bio do they do they express that interest are they are they still skeptical i mean no when you knock on those doors you know the the positivity is great okay And, and i think you know when people see my background and the fact that i grew up in the district that i've been in dupage county since the 1980s and uh i've been in district since 2002 um when, when people see that and, and they, they understand that, that the struggles that they're experiencing are the struggles I experienced as well. And when they see this clear contrast between me and my opponent, they understand that this is not an ego campaign. This is a values campaign. Mm. And, and, and I actually met with the incumbent a couple of days ago at Halal Fest, no less. And, and my statement to him was very clear. I said, look, I, I understand there's natural tension because we're both running for the same nomination, sure. uh, the Democratic nomination of the 11th district. Uh, but I want to be clear and I want to be on the record and, and I'm saying this on, on live camera as well, that we're going to run a campaign on the values. I'm not going to mudsling. I think he's a genuinely nice guy. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and malign his character or his integrity. I think that would be silly. And I think that's one reason people are done with politics because there's this name calling and, and mudslinging. And, and meanwhile, I can't put food on the table and you're sitting here name calling. So right. I said to him very directly to his face that, look, I, I respect you as a human being. I vehemently disagree with you on some of your votes and policies. And my commitment to you is I'm going to strictly focus on the votes and the policies. Right. And I said, I want reciprocity as well. I, I'm an American Muslim immigrant proudly. And uh, my brother's a U.S. Marine, a veteran. And, you know, we love our country. We love be- we're here and, and proud Americans because we chose to be proud Americans. Right. And I hope that in the reciprocity aspect of it, if you critique me, it's on my policies and on my stances. You and I hope your allies should not delve into Islamophobic rhetoric, dog whistle racism. And to his credit, he said that they aren't, he's not going to do that either. And I, and I respect that and appreciate that about him too. Right. I want to read from your, um, uh, from your campaign press release. These three things I, I, I really like and want to talk about, uh, in, in more detail. So at a time of immense wealth and income inequality, catastrophic climate change and attacks on our foundational rights, Kasim is running to bring us decades of experience of public service and human rights advocacy to Congress to ensure every resident of the 11th district has equal access to justice. So the catastrophic climate change. Yeah. Um, what, what can we do? What can be done on the, on the local level and, and how will you help with that? I think there's a number of things we can do. Okay. And, and the scientists have been sounding the alarm on this thing for decades. One of the fundamental problems with our politics right now is corporate money in politics. 
and and as divisive as our country is, uh, as divided as our country is, I should say, uh, with Republicans and Democrats sometimes living in alternate universes, the one thing that we largely agree upon, the polling shows that 85 to 90% of Americans agree, get corporate money out of politics. That has no place in politics. And these fossil fuel companies who are the leading drivers of climate change, who have known since the 1960s and 70s as internal memos show that, hey, this is going to cause climate change. This is going to cause changes in weather patterns, in ocean patterns, and hurricanes. They've known this for, for decades. They are the leading drivers of climate change. And so nip the problem in the bud first. Stop letting them influence politics. Stop letting them influence policy. Because at the end of the day, if they're dictating policy, they're doing it on one factor alone. What's going to maximize wealth for them? Exxon made over $8 billion in profit last year while jacking up the price of gas under this claim of infl- inflation when in actuality it was largely corporate profits that they're just trying to, to, to raise even higher. So you asked what practically we can do. We can demand politicians stop taking fossil fuel money. My opponent, unfortunately, has taken about $75,000 in fossil fuel money um, as a scientist, which is mind-boggling to me. And uh, by holding them accountable to say, hey, if you believe climate change is real, then why are you taking fossil fuel money? Get it out. We don't need it. That's one. Two, we need to uh, recognize that shifting our economy to a greener economy is not just a climate justice issue. It's also a racial justice issue. It's also an economic justice issue. A lot of folks don't realize the racial element of climate change. And and I, th- I think uh, Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg and a few others were mocked for, for pointing out the racial aspect of climate change. The fact of the matter is that if you are black in America right now, you have a 35% higher likelihood of living next to a toxic waste dump than if you're white in America. For Latino in America, you have about a 20% higher chance of living next to a toxic waste dump. We all remember the Dakota Access Pipeline from a couple of years ago, going through sacred Native American lands. And people are like, well, what's the big deal? It's, it's, why are people making a big deal about it? Well, I'm not even going to argue that point, because if you have to ask, then that's just a very different conversation. Right. But backing up on that story, what folks don't understand or don't realize, that initially, that pipeline was supposed to go through a wealthy white neighborhood. And they got rerouted through an indigenous neighborhood. So the people asking what's the problem should go back to the wealthy white neighborhood and say, what was the problem of it going through your neighborhood? And that answers the question right there. And so there is a racial element of it as well. And then there's also an economic element of it as well. By shifting to these newer technologies, we are building a more sustainable economy long-term. These newer technologies, whether it's battery creation, whether it's hydrogen fuel cell, whether it is wind, solar, uh, renewables, these jobs pay seventy-five, dollars $125,000 a year, and they're sustainable long-term. So when we talk about meaningful climate justice, it, invo- it requires on a local level for us to be engaged and involved. And I've, I've said this a million times before, and I will always say this. Vote for the person that you think is best qualified for the job and then haunt their dreams. Mm. Hold their feet to the fire. Make them accountable for the promises they set forth and make them accountable. Because look, the people in Congress right now, like my opponent, I, I wish him a long and healthy life. I do. But the decisions he's making right now to take fossil fuel money aren't going to impact him in 50, 60 years. They are going to impact my 10-year-old asthmatic son that I've had to keep locked up inside the house for the last month because if he goes outside, it could be deadly and dangerous for him. And, and, and that's what I want parents to think about, that the decisions we're making can't just be for the next election. They have to be for the next generation. Because climate change isn't coming, it's here now, and we need to act with the urgency of now as if your house is on fire right now because our planet literally is on fire right now. Um, we, uh, we were fortunate to have uh, Mavis Bates, Kane County board member on, and uh, indeed, the jobs of the future are in renewable energies and, um, and many different solar initiatives. So there's so many, there are so many young people uh, Quad County Urban League comes to mind. There's so many organizations that are trying to get these young people um, acclimated to these new jobs of the future, many of them being green jobs, which will be here and have many promising futures. Um, So, yeah, and I I do think that would also that will help um, income inequality. Now, um, the attacks on our foundational rights. um, What's under attack? What do you mean? Uh, What do you mean by that specifically? 
about our democracy under attack? Where do I begin? Um, let's talk about voting rights. And, I, and this is what I, I love talking to my Republican friends about this. That in 2006, the, a Republican House and Senate and Republican president near unanimously signed the 2006 Voting Rights Act into law. It expanded voting access, established more polls, uh, polling locations, uh, made voting easier in low-income and black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And what happened in 2008? First black man elected in the history of the United States. Record turnout among black voters. Black voter turnout exceeded white voter turnout for the first time in, I think, ever in U.S. history. And then in, in 20, uh, uh, 2012, just four years later, 2013. They took it all away. They got Shelby, rid of that. <laughs> Shelby versus, uh, kind versus Holder stripped it all away. Right? That's yes. all it took. One black guy getting elected and one black turnout more than white turnout. It took it all away. And in the aftermath, in states like Texas, they closed more than 500 polling locations in predominantly black and Latino districts. Just shut them down. Right. And people need to understand how devastating that is. If you're a minimum wage worker, if you're a low-income worker, or if you're a worker of any uh, a, a socioeconomic status, but live in a place where transportation is difficult, and now instead of driving two miles to the polling location, you got to drive 40 miles to a polling location, you're not going to vote. Right. And, and if you're the Republican Party, you don't need to shut down every black voter. You seem to shut down two or three percent. Now that's, that's that's how close these elections are. Right now, that's on the that's on the national level. Is that happening in in the eleventh uh, congressional district? Is that is that something that's that's a worry? We are locally? we are fortunate in Illinois uh, that we have a governor like J.B. Pritzker. We are fortunate that we have Democratic majorities, and the goal of the Democratic Party is to expand voter access to all U.S. citizens to all eligible voters. Right. And the policies put forth, mail-in ballot voting, early voting, makes that easier, right? It shouldn't be easier to vote for American Idol than it is to vote for our democracy. Right. And the idea put forth is if you want a stronger country, you, have, you do so by getting more people involved and engaged in the civic process. And so the answer to your question is while in the 11th district, we're fortunate to have the benefit of a state that sees voting as a strength, not a weakness. We need to understand that we don't live on an island. We're part of a larger country that has seen hundreds of voter suppression bills enacted throughout the country. Uh, North Carolina, for example, enacted a voter suppression bill that the, the, the federal appeals court said surgically targeted black voters. And they used that word surgically. They used that word surgically. They looked at what, voter ID black people predominantly used and made that particular ID illegal. Not because there was voter fraud. Not because there was some type of election fraud. No, they said, this is what black people use, so we're going to cancel this particular ID only. And fortunately, it was overturned, and, but th- that's, that's what we're facing right now. And, and that's happening around the country. And in a country where you have a Senate that is not determined on population, but is determined on land, the Senate represents land, not people. We got to be right. clear about that. That's why it was designed. And you have enough red states doing that that even though we have access in Illinois, we don't have access nationally. And that's why we need people who are going to be not just not racist, but anti racist. Right. Not just not injustice, but pro justice and actively fight on a national level to protect our rights. Because guess what? Even if we have rights there locally, if they're stripped away nationally, like Roe v. Wade, it's going to impact us locally as well. Absolutely. Don't just be there. Be engaged. Exactly right. Gonzalez Yuzdivia, good morning to you. Saul Olivas, Jennifer Ryan Mayton, Valerie Trainum, Norma Peterson, and Aisha Saxon. Good morning to all of you wonderful, beautiful people. As mentioned, we are back live. I know you guys missed us on Thursday and Friday last week. Well, Thursday for Buenos Dias Aurora, but we are back. Tracy Durant's here. Good morning. So is Michael Calderon. Um I want to uh, re- um, read a little more, and this is where I want to get into the, your, your work as a um, human rights lawyer. Definitely. So, well, well first of all, uh, well, let me just read. Um, so over the past 15 years, excuse me, Qasim has worked tirelessly and 
human rights law to support survivors of domestic and sexual violence, advocate for immigrants and refugees, mentor incarcerated citizens, uh, citizens excuse me, lead nonprofit organizations, and represent low-income communities. Um, tell me what you've learned doing that work that makes you an effective candidate for Congress. The human condition, regardless of race, religion, color, creed, gender, gender identity, it's the same condition. Okay. Everything that we see that differentiates us is not a cause of fear or hate. It's a cause of celebration. We should recognize the diversity amongst each other and celebrate that. But the fundamental issues, food, water, shelter, healthcare, education, clothing, these six things impact all of us the same way. I've talked to folks on on the left side of the political aisle, I've talked to folks on the far right side of the political aisle. And at the core, they want their children to be safe. They want to have food on the table. They want them to go to good schools. They want to live in a safe environment. And I think so often we, we allow culture wars to impact our ability to recognize the humanity in one another. When I'm representing survivors of domestic and sexual violence, I can tell you my clients have been Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist, Hindu, across the spectrum. People who are devoutly religious, people who are anti-religion, but they suffer the same horrific crime of suffering domestic and sexual violence. When I talk to people at food pantries, people struggling from food insecurity, they come from all walks of life and all all backgrounds. And so for me, the way it's informed my advocacy (coughs) is to recognize that the standard has to be justice. It has to be absolute justice in everything we do. Now, I'm running as a Democrat proudly because I believe the Democratic Party is closer to justice. But that doesn't mean that I think the Democratic Party is is above reproach. Sure. Uh, Based on the fact that I'm running against an incumbent Democrat who I think, while he's a nice guy, has not upheld justice in the values that we need at this moment in time in in our country's history. And I've also learned the beauty of humanity in this space, the resilience of humanity in this space, that despite these obstacles we face, we can overcome them. I'm I'm reminded often of a quote of James Baldwin, the late, great James Baldwin, where he writes in The Fire Next Time, when he talks about the work that needs to be done to uphold a sense of justice and equity for all people. And he says, I know that which I'm asking you is impossible. He doesn't say seems impossible. He goes, I know that which I'm asking you is impossible. But when you look at the spectacle of human history in general, and of the Negro history in particular, you are emboldened for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. Because the impossible is the least that we can demand. And so what I've discovered, and whether it's traveling overseas to to Turkey after the earthquake earlier this year, or to Mali to help uh, 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 lay foundation stones for new schools and hospitals, or to Guatemala to help build a hospital for maternal health care, is globally nationally and locally, we all want these same fundamental tools and rights of access to justice. And I see my view as a candidate and hopeful future congressperson to have that as my North Star, that what is going to be the call to absolute justice to ensure every person has equal rights, equal access, and equal human dignity under the law. What's the first thing that the, or what's the most um, glaring thing that the, uh, that the 11th Congressional District needs? It's number one thing it needs. Economic justice. Okay. At its core, economic. I think everything else comes from economic justice. Okay. If people can't put food on the table, don't talk to me about anything else. People need foundational economic justice. And the fact that wealth and income inequality is worse now than it was 25 years ago is, a, is, is an insult. It, it should be an outrage to everyone. Small businesses need support. I, I don't understand why small businesses are paying the same tax rate as billionaire corporations, or in some cases, a higher tax rate than billionaire corporations. Well, I understand why. It's because the billionaire corporations can lobby politicians to write tax law that benefits them while small businesses get left out in the cold. I don't understand why we're taxing food and medicine or for women, period, products. These are necessities for human sustainment. Why are we taxing a necessity? You know, my my 10-year-old is the sweetest kid in the world. When he was about six or seven, my children's book came out. And in, in the children's book, there's a scene where they're going to a soup kitchen. And he didn't understand what a soup kitchen was. And I said, well, there's people who don't have enough food. 
And soup kitchens are ways to ensure they can have access to some food so they don't starve. And he said, but Abu, I, I don't understand. Don't people need food to live? And I said, well, yeah, of course. He goes, then why isn't food free? He goes, what you're telling me is that there are people starving to death, not because we don't have enough food, but because we're just not giving it to them. That's, why would we do that? And he said, try explaining this to a six, seven-year-old kid, right, that why aren't we just giving food to people who are struggling? And as someone who grew up on food stamps myself, trust me, I know that struggle. I know that pain. And I know that humiliation for a long time. I, I didn't even want to talk about it because I was embarrassed until I realized that poverty isn't a life choice. We can't allow systems to perpetuate it that make it a life sentence. So yeah, economic justice is the core of our campaign. Everything stems from that. No, uh, you, you, kids are smarter than we think. Mm-hmm. I remember the my son was maybe around eight or nine or something like that. And we were passing by uh, people passing out food for Thanksgiving. And he was like, what are they doing? I was like, I'm just giving away some free food to folks. He was like, it's free? I was like, yeah. He was like, how come some places charge and, other, and these guys are free? I was like, yeah. well, some people can't afford to have a meal, so these guys step up and make sure that people can, you know, get a plate yeah. of food. And it blew his mind. Yeah. It it blew his mind that, like, over here you got to pay, but some people can't pay. Yeah. So some people will give you food for free because people are going hungry. And then he started seeing scenery made a lot more sense to him now you start seeing the people sitting there and you know people who were um i work in housing so it's 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 really important to me the whole dynamic of a person's experience is uh is is um really poignant absolutely um but you did a lot of your work pro bono as well i do yeah why again access access to justice shouldn't be based on the size of your bank account Fundamentally, that's what it's all about. Look, a, a, a significant number of the folks that I represented and represent are pro bono or at a reduced rate. And at the end of the day, um, I remember my very first client I ever had. It was a young woman um, who was an immigrant and was suffering horrific domestic abuse. And the domestic abuse wasn't just physical, it was also financial. Uh, her spouse refused to give her any money any means and had threatened that if you report anything, we're going to, I'm going to get you deported, um, you know, back to, uh, I won't. And if I had gone to her and said, Hey, I'll help you if you pay me X amount of money, where's that money going to come from? If I had said that your access to justice is this many dollars away that you have no access of getting to, then she has no access to justice. And so part of, Part of why I wanted to be uh, involved in that case and why I've taken on hundreds such pro bono cases since then is because at the end of the day, I've been fortunate enough, I've been blessed enough to have developed a, a, a specialty, have a license to practice law, and the skill set and the mentors to get me to where I am today. Shame on me if I can't extend myself and try to pay it forward. And, and this, this young woman... Um, uh, this was almost 12, 13 years ago now, has since uh, gotten out of that horrific situation, uh, went to school, uh, became a nurse, and now is a healthcare worker and thriving in her life, right? A powerful testament to taking the extra step and supporting people. But the frustration I have, though, is that from an advocacy standpoint, we were able to support her great. But from a systemic injustice standpoint, one in three women are still suffering some sort of abuse. And the work that we men need to do to elevate ourselves is, it's both astronomical, but also simple. Control ourselves and be effective in the way we treat human beings as well, treat women. And so whether it's supporting survivors of domestic abuse, whether it's asylees and refugees, uh, uh, whether it is uh, low-income communities suffering uh, civil rights violations and representing them in court, that's the least I think I can do to pay back what's been given to me. Very well said, sir. Very well said. Time is 827 a.m. You are listening to and watching Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. Our guest today is Mr. Qasem Rashid, candidate for Congress in the 11th Congressional District. Luz Elena Brambila Guerrero. Good morning to you, Michael Rayford, Daniel, and Jimmy Clark. Joe Jackson, Hesed House is in the house. Sally Bice and Sarah McNally. Good morning. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about those workshops. Go for it. We'll consider this our commercial break. Yeah, now.
And then when we come back, we will uh, we will talk more. Talk more. Boston in the house. All right. Okay. On your screen, ladies and gentlemen, on your screen, um, as you can see, we have a great workshop that's coming up Tuesday, August 15th. This will be in the uh, downtown Aurora Santori branch of the Aurora Public Library. Getting to know your credit. What is a credit score and why is it so important? Uh, this is presented by the Neighbor Project, the City of Aurora's Financial Empowerment Center, the FEC, and the Aurora Public Library and COA, City of Aurora, as well. Um, it, there's going to be two sessions, one in Spanish and one in English. The Spanish session will be from 6 to 7 p.m. The English session will be from 7.15 to 8.15 p.m. Once again, it's going to be Tuesday, August 15th. And um, Spanish-speaking counselors will be there on hand. I personally know them, too. Cynthia, Brenda, you know, just a couple of names for you guys to uh, check out and get to know. So Tuesday, uh, August 15th, let everyone know. You guys can go out to that. This event is free and open to the public. Uh, next, after that, is the budgeting workshop and it's actually the day before so monday the 14th and it's going to be at 77 south broadway here in downtown aurora that's the intersection of broadway and benton this is presented by the power women group p-o-w-e-r um, and it's going to teach you all about budgeting how to effectively budget and other great financial tips. Um, once again, this is presented by the Aurora FEC Financial Empowerment Center and the City of Aurora. And uh, this event is also free and open to the public. So come on out there and and uh, learn. Learn and have a good time. And then that reminds me, one other thing I wanted to tell you guys about because it's extremely important too and i have the flyer um so the 17th good morning aurora is having our next conversation with our law enforcement partners and friends of the kane county state's attorney's office and the monthly conversation will be about problem solving courts so save the date it's going to be thursday august 17th from 6 to 7 p.m many people who face criminal charges have a substance use disorder mental health diagnosis or have experienced trauma um, illinois 16th Judicial Court offers problem-solving courts as an alternative to incarceration. The circuit recently added DUI court to drug rehabilitation court, treatment alternative court, and veterans court. Join us on Facebook Live to learn more about these courts and how they help people and how the community benefits. Yes, Kane County State's Attorney and Good Morning Aurora have partnered up. So this would be another good one for you guys to take part in, listen to, and watch. The time is 8.31 a.m. You're listening to and watching Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. All right. Uh, so I want to read a little bit more um, from your press release and background, my friend. And then we're going to go it. into your uh, your writing and your books. Great. All right. Um, so uh, Qasim and family immigrated from Pakistan in 1987, arrove, arrived in DuPage County in 1988 and soon settled um, in Glen Ellen. Um, after graduating from Glen Bard South High School, um, you attended North Central College Naperville for two years before completing your bachelor's degree from UIC. And uh, you also received your law degree with honors from the University of Richmond School of Law and served as a Harvard University fellow. What was DuPage County like in 1988? You know, I, we loved it. We loved it. In, in hindsight, you know, people talk about how it was red or blue. And I was too young to understand what that meant. <laughs> right. I, I didn't care. I, I was just glad that, uh, you know, we had a basketball hoop uh, <laughs> uh, nearby and that I had friends that I could play with. And, right. and, and my uncle uh, uh, bought us bicycles, our first bicycle, and I still cherish uh, his memory for, for doing that for us. And, you know, the, the world was our oyster. And um, I, I saw a funny thing on TikTok where some teen, teenage kid asks, uh, hey, people in your 40s, what did you do before social media? And, and somebody, <laughs> I, I think it was Kev on stage, the, the black comedian, he's hilarious. And he just gave a whole thing about, we went outside. Right. We were outside the whole day. That's all we did. We were just outside. If, if you thought you had to go inside, you didn't, you just went outside. I mean, it was, it's, and that's, that's what it was like back then. And, and I, I, I did have, while it was low income, I did have a loving childhood in the sense that, um, you know, I had my siblings, had good friends, had parents that cared about me. Um, and I have fond memories of that time as well. 
and uh, you know you can never go back, but you can hopefully create a future where your kids can enjoy the same benefits as well. Nice, nice. Um, all right, so the um, now your writings. Um, you've written four books. Hana and the Ramadan Gift, Talk to Me, Changing the Narrative on Race, Religion, and Education, The Wrong Kind of Muslim, An Untold Story of Persecution and Perseverance and Extremists, a response to Geert Wilders and terrorists everywhere. Um, first of all, how do you like the experience of writing? And you know, how do you feel? What What does it give you? It It's an outlet. It's a release. Okay. It's a way for us to tell our stories in our own authentic unfiltered way that's fundamentally for me what it comes down to and if there's one thing i learned growing up it's that unless we tell our stories our own authentic selves then they will be told for us by people who may not have the best interests for us at heart that's right and so we need to be unapologetic and authentic in our stories and and for me it's therapeutic i mean the my first book the wrong kind of muslim i think i wrote uh, i started writing when i was 20 three, 24 years old. And it, it helped me kind of have a conduit for the frustrations I was feeling. And it helped me convey to those around me what that lived experience is like. Now the process itself can be everything from exhilarating to infuriating and everything in between. I think every writer will tell you that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had these moments of these moments of inspiration where I can, I can visualize the entire story or the entire message in my head. And then it's just a matter of, you know, there's that scene with, uh, in, in Almighty Bruce with Jim Carrey where he's <laughs> responding to prayers and typing on his computer. So yeah. it's, a, it's, it's like that where I'm just trying to get it all out of my head as fast as possible. And, and I think some of my best writing is stuff that it, it struck me like a, like a lightning bolt and I just did an information dump as quickly as I possibly could. And then I was able to refine it. And so... But yeah, the shorter answer is it's it's an oscillation between exhilarating and infuriating. Okay. Now, The Wrong Kind of Muslim was your first book. Yeah. Um, and it received it received great acclaim. I mean, uh, you know, no less than Senator Tim Kaine. Yeah. Um uh has has uh spoken very highly about the book. Now, I wonder and if you if you would share with us, what was it, you know, you were young when you came to America. Yeah. Um, it's one thing to grow up black. It's one thing to grow up Latino uh, in a place like Glen Ellen. Yeah. What was it like to grow up Muslim in the uh, Western uh, suburbs? And and, 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 and I'm, I'm talking about everything from, yeah. you know, your first Halloween. Sure. In America. Sure. I mean, you know, everybody's, a, you know, we're doing Christmas at school, you know, to uh, um, walk us through that because, that and your human rights advocacy and the work that you've done, I think, as I told you before, the cameras come on. You know, I find that extremely impressive, and I love the I love I love the ability for people to maintain culture and work with and for the benefit of others. So, talk about that well, if you will. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you two stories. You know, the story of our immigration was is something I, I mean I remember flying here. I remember the immigration process. And our parents infused in us this understanding that, hey, this is our home and you have every right to be here and you can be as authentic as you need to be, both as an as a Muslim and as an American. There's no contradiction between the two. So it was a new new country, a new culture, uh, a new environment, but they rather than insulate ourselves, immersed us. We were at the Glen Island Public Library every week. I've read every single Peanuts comic book out there and every single Calvin and Hobbes comic book out there. Calvin and Hobbes? Absolutely. And, and I've gotten it for my kids, and my kids love it as well. Oh, man, come on now. Yeah, I, dude, it, that's, that's what life was all about. Calvin that's, and that's, Hobbes. That's how we Absolutely. immerse ourselves. And people think it's a comic book for kids. It's for adults as well. I knew I, we were going to be friends as soon as you walked in here. Calvin and Hobbes. And so, and so that, for us, was part of the, the, the American experience, right? And, and I, I was probably one of few South Asian kids in my schools growing up. The mosque I went to on the south side of Chicago was a mix of black and South Asian. And so uh, for me, that interracial engagement was very common. A lot of interracial marriages in my mosque. And so that was a very normal thing for me growing up. That wasn't something that, you know, happened later. It was just kind of a natural part of the experience, which I'm extremely grateful for. My earliest teachers were black scholars. And so I was very fortunate to have 
a an authentic ex- American experience because if you want to learn about American history, you learn it through the eyes of black scholars. That's my view, and 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 a lot of that was driven by my faith as well because Islam teaches the universality of all humanity and the obligation to serve all humanity indiscriminately, right? And so when I talk about justice, when I talk about human rights, there's no asterisk next to them. Sure. And and and, and I think, you know, the the two stories I'll tell that really kind of resonated with me on a deep and intimate level and, and do to, to this day was I remember, and I talk, I write about this in my book, talk to me. I remember in elementary school, there was a new kid in, in school and I was a new kid uh, because there was a district change. And then a few months later, this new kid comes suddenly all the attention shifts to the newest new kid, right? You know how it is. Everybody yeah. remembers being the new kid or, or having a new kid come in and we're all talking to him, talking to him, talking to him. And I'm kind of sitting at a distance observing the conversation and they ask him, what'd you get for Christmas? And he goes, well, I, I didn't get anything. I'm Jewish. We don't celebrate Christmas. And the kid said, oh, he's a Jewish kid. And they, like, like it was repelling something. They, they all walked away immediately. Like there was something wrong with them. Now, I'm like eight, nine years old. I've never met a Jewish kid in my life because I grew up, you know, five, six years in Pakistan. I've only been here for a couple of years. And so I go home and I ask my dad, I'm like, hey, is there, is there something wrong with being friends with the Jewish kid? And now this could have been a moment where he could have said something nasty, said something bigoted as parents are wont to or elderly people are wont, wont to right. about the others. And he said the exact opposite. He goes, absolutely not. Tell me what happened. I told him the story and he said, here's what you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to go find this kid and you're going to ask him to play at recess. And so it was a cool experience because you had the one Muslim kid and one Jewish kid playing at recess the rest of the school year. So that was a, a formative experience in my mind of you treat people with compassion based on their humanity, not based on their religion or identity. You, you recognize and celebrate that diversity. The second formative experience I had as well, and this really goes back into this current story of why I'm so adamant in telling our story, is I remember coming home from some family event or dinner somewhere and uh, people under 30 are probably too young to remember this, but there used to be these things called answering machines. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you, you came home and you pressed the button and it said, you have seven messages and you had to listen to your messages. And it was a tape too. It was a tape. It was a cassette tape, which Google that if you don't know what that is. And uh, my, my father hit play and the very first message was just this monsoon of Islamophobic and racist stuff, sand and word, camel jockey, mm-hmm. go back where you came from, towel head. And it, it was it was somebody who said, this is a Christian country. You know, we don't want you here. Get out. My father is, an, uh, is a theologian. He's a professor. He's retired now of Islamic theology. And he was an imam at the at the local mosque. And I remember the the look of hurt and pain on my father's face. And, and it wasn't for himself, is what I realized as I became a father. It was for the recognition that his eight-year-old son had to hear this and what kind of a future is he going to have in this kind of environment. And so his response to that was to double down and say we're going to be authentic in our faith and we're going to be authentic in our engagement in the community. Everything from soup kitchens to highway cleanups to being involved in the library to be involved in school sports. There was no, there was no timidness in that space mm-hmm. to, to be your full authentic self. And so for me now, you know, three, four years ago, I found myself sitting in the federal court testifying against the man who wanted to kill me for my faith and kill my children for their faith. And so for me, you know, coming 30 years later and experiencing the same thing that my father experienced back in the late 80s, early 90s, is a reminder of how much more work we have to do and, and, and how much, how critical it is that we are there for not just our children now, but for our next generation as well. So you, so you asked, what was that experience like? It was overwhelmingly positive, but there absolutely were painful barbs that I can't ignore that are kind of persisting. And that until and unless we stand together as humanity on these principles of justice, we're not going to be able to undermine and, and undo. And, and I think we can and will once we recognize the humanity in one another, as, as I started my com- comments with. Uh, 8.42 is the time. It's Monday. Good morning, everybody out there. Uh, Emily, good morning to you. Shout out to Zenloft Wellness Center, 6 South Stope Avenue. Go there to to do many things. Yoga, get your spiritual, read books, do all kinds. They have great tea. 
a great place, and Emily's fantastic. She does massages as well, so mm. release your your everything that's holding you back there. Um, question, uh, and this is um, it's, an, it's also about um, writing and things like that. Do you, um, uh, and actually that takes me to your other book, excuse me real quick, um, Talk to me, changing the narrative on race, religion, and education. Um, besides the work that you do um, with human rights advocacy and everything, do you speak to people? Um, it, you know, maybe they're students or um, other groups. Do you speak to them on on race, religion, education, and and helping change some of those narratives and things like that? You know, uh, do you take your yeah your book work outside of just the literary? I, 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 absolutely. No, I I, I so. The work I do with nonprofits and the work I do in public speaking uh, speaks to this okay. a lot. And so, uh, I mean, I've already spoken at a bunch of places earlier this year. I'll be speaking at a couple of major conferences later this year as okay. well on this issue. And I, and I think it's important, right, to, to kind of be out there. I think so, too. Um, and, 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 and really put your I, – I was, I was in Akron, Ohio, earlier this year talking about um, the importance of recognizing the racial injustices we face – and how we can be anti-racist, how we can play an active role in rectifying these issues, and uh, and same with the nonprofits that I work with. And the, you know, I, I sit on the board of several nonprofit organizations um, for reproductive health access, for ending the arms trade, and having more justice in our military, uh, for disaster relief and humanitarian aid to ensure we can build better schools, hospitals, uh, provide eye surgeries. At the end of the day. My, my mantra, and this is one of my favorite quotes by Muhammad Ali, the greatest, where he said, service to others is the rent you pay for your time here on earth. And so in speaking to young people and speaking publicly about this stuff, it really is how do I ensure that when my time comes, and it will come, uh, comes for all of us, mm-hmm. the, when my time comes, I've, I can be confident that I gave my all and I gave my best to serve my community around me. And that's, I think, all any of us can be asked to do. Do you have any um, any events coming up? We do. Any, uh, we do campaign news. Go go to our website, kasimrashid.com, uh, Q A S I M R A S H I D dot com. We've got an events page on there. We have regular coffee with Kasim events. We've had a bunch of Endero coffee right here in Aurora. We're gonna have a bunch okay. more as well. And come through and let's have a conversation and uh, a cup of coffee on me. I promise. All right, Endero, good place. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's shout great out to place. shout out to Cody who gave me this hoodie. I'm wearing this hoodie because it gets it does get cold in here. I, uh, I think we're gonna be at uh, that's a beautiful hoodie. I might have to to, to swipe one as well. We're gonna be at Endero this Thursday at 5:45 p.m. This Thursday, 5.45 p.m. in Dero Coffee. That's right. All right, Coffee with Kasim. That's right. All right. Um, so, polling, how do you feel your chances are? How do you feel? Look, I wouldn't be in this race if I didn't think we were going to win it. Uh, I think that's what, I mean, I, I ran cross-country and track growing up, and you walked into a race expecting to win. You, you don't run for second place. You run to win, Word. right? And yeah. if you're running for second place, then why even bother being in the race in the first place? And so we're running to win this. We think that we have the values, we have the messaging, we have the experience, we have the proven model to win this. And it's going to be a matter of building a coalition of people who care about these issues on an intimate level. This race really fundamentally is about two visions for the future of this district and the future vision of our country. Do we want a politics funded by billionaire corporations, uh, funded by by people who are beholden to what the billionaire corporations want them to do? Or do we want a future of someone who's lived in the trenches, grew up low income, has worked with low income communities his entire life, and now is running a 100% people funded campaign on these values that we all care about? That's really the future. I mean, if, if you're happy with the status quo, if you're happy with someone being funded by big pharma during an opiate crisis, by uh, the fossil fuel companies during a climate crisis, by hedge fund and housing companies during a housing crisis, uh, by universities during a university tuition crisis, uh, if you're happy with someone who uh, continues to vote down our civil rights and civil liberties, then maybe we're not the right campaign. But I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that every person out there agrees we need to tackle the climate crisis. We need to tackle the opioid crisis. We need to have banks be regulated, not deregulated. We need to ensure housing is affordable, not exponentially increasing. We need to ensure that we have humane immigration policies. 
this is the work I've been doing for the last 15 years as an advocate. And I've got proven results to show for it. Come out to one of our events. Have a conversation with me. Don't vote for me simply because I'm asking for your vote. Make me earn that vote. Hold me accountable. Hold my feet to the fire because that's what a public servant should be willing to do. And I think if we run that campaign with a sense of justice and meaningful compassion, and when I say meaningful compassion, I don't just mean lip service. I mean compassion through action. If you have love for somebody, it's not a word, it's an action. Let me show you the work we've been doing and then show you the work that we will do. And I promise you that at the end of the day, casting a vote for us will be casting a vote for someone that you can actually believe in based on the work we've accomplished, not just the lesser of two evils. Um, if anyone is interested in your, um, your human rights work and advocacy, where can they find more information? You can go to our website at KasimRashid.com, okay. uh, and we will respond very, very quickly. I'm at KasimRashid on social media. Send me a DM. Me or, or someone from my team will respond pretty quickly. Okay. And now that you're here in Aurora, I mean, you got, you know, we're doing Enduro, Enduro Thursday. So now that you're here in our city more, what do you... What do you think about the second largest city, man? I mean, what do you what do you what do you think about us? What do you like about Aurora? Say, say, say your slogan again for the show, because I like that. What was that? <laughs> the second largest city's first daily news podcast. I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. I, I I actually had a brief stint of living in Aurora about twenty years ago. Once we were getting out of Section Eight housing and trying to figure out where we were going to be long term, and we actually uh, even put a down payment on a house in Aurora. We got scammed. It was a guy who scammed us out of five thousand dollars. It was. Horrifying experience. Um, and he got away with it too, which is unfortunate, which is what happens when you're low income and you can't afford legal counsel. Mind you. Um, yep. But no, it's a beautiful city. It's, it's, it's a beautiful community. It's a diverse, vibrant community, um, a thriving a black community, thriving Latino community. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of, of, uh, of, I mean, just it's a reflection of, I think it's like a microcosm of Illinois, which is great. And I think the potential here is really through the roof. We've got some great local elected leaders in uh, Barbara Hernandez, in Karina Villa. Um, it's exciting to see, you know, representative leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, a, a great quote by a, a friend of mine who's an author, Mary Robinette, who says that um, it's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It's representation for the sake of reality. Right. And when you have people like Karina and Robert representing, I think it's, it's representative for the sake of the reality of this community. So, um, and, and now I've had the pleasure of meeting you, Curtis. So it's exciting to Same see here, man. Nice to meet you. Yeah. It's yep. exciting. Thank you. It's exciting to see, uh, people, young people take ownership, take the lead and really build a narrative of compassion and justice. That's, that's um that gives me hope for the future of our community and of our country absolutely yeah um you know we 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 try to live up to that famous quote you know be the change that you want to see absolutely. in the world um all right time is eight fifty one a.m so um your website is in the chat thank you very much for that that's awesome alejandra alejandra good morning to you um the you're going to be at Indira Coffee on Thursday. Yes. What time again? Five forty-five. Five forty-five p.m. for a meet and greet. Um, so come on out there, free and open to the public. That's right. Um, man, these books though. That's another time. We'll we'll, we'll save that for another time. We'll he, save that for. He, he, we'll here's the here's the one. I, here's the one. Ask I have of folks. Yep. Um, is, is that at the end of the day, we get the leaders that we vote for or don't vote for. And, and I know there is frustration out there that my vote doesn't count, that my vote doesn't matter. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that whether you think your vote counts or doesn't, you're right. Um, if you think it doesn't count and you don't vote, then you're right. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter because you're not contributing. If you, if you think it does count, then it absolutely does and it absolutely doesn't matter. I remember during the George Floyd protests, I was out on the streets marching and I spoke at a whole bunch of them. And I was arguably harsh in my comments. And I said to folks that if you're out here marching, but you're not voting, then your marching literally means nothing. Because at the end of the day, we need you to take that anger and that passion and that fire and bring it to the polls to bring about meaningful accountability. Because every person who's a citizen here needs to vote. They need right. to be engaged. They need to be involved because this is your country. You own this country. And this is the way you can make sure that your voice not just is heard, but that it matters and that it is undeniable. And so take that fire and passion, find 10 people who haven't voted before, get them registered and make sure they vote. And I promise you, and I assure you, this is my eternal optimism in this country and the beauty of this country. After everything that we've overcome in this country, whether it was overcoming, uh, 
building our independence, um, winning the Civil War, uh, establishing the Civil Rights Amendments, reestablishing the Civil Rights Amendments uh, in 1964, because people forget that they were passed in 1875 and they were repealed, mm -hmm. reestablishing them in 1964, passing the ADA, which my opponent voted to strip down, and, and continuing to build equal justice for women, for immigrants, for people of color, for the LGBTQ community. The, the, the fight is ongoing and it will only be successful if we stay engaged. Every generation has to be engaged on their own intimate and personal level and this is this generation's call. So my only ask is don't lose hope, don't be apathetic, recognize that this is our country and we have the power to take it back by voting, not through violence, not through anger, not through burning anything down as folks on the right are trying to do, but by leading with justice and compassion. Come see us in Dero. I'll buy you a cup of coffee and I'll try to earn your vote there. Now, typically the show ends on a positive note. So we ask the guests for their message of the day. That sounded like the message that of the it. day right there. That was it. <laughs> that was it. In inadvertently, that was it. Uh, um, well, Mr. Rashid, we appreciate your time. Uh, very much here on the show today. Um, we do. Um, once again, your event is going to be at Enduro Coffee this Thursday, free and open to the public. So please, folks, come out. Also, your website is in the chat for That's everyone to right. uh, so check that information out as well. Daniel Calderon, enjoy the rest of your day as well. Um, we appreciate the time uh, and good luck to you, sir. Thank you, brother. Thank Good you for having me. You. I appreciate this platform and I hope to uh, come back on and chat again soon. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, be blessed and take care of yourself and each other.